Today, we're talking to Julius Purcell, independent DC specialist, to find out what value for money means to him, and of course, to talk about the pensions budget. Welcome to the 11th episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by my, by my co-host, the one and only Nico Aspinall. Hi, Nico. Hi, Darren, and I am delighted as ever to be joined by you. Uh, and today we're welcoming Julius Purcell. Welcome. Hello, both. I'm delighted to be here. No, thank you very much for joining us. Um, so, Julius, you are an independent DC specialist. Uh, that includes advisor to Cushion. Um, you've been on the With Profits chair uh, 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 board for Prudential. Uh, you chaired the Heineken. Uh, is it the scheme, Julius, or was uh, the, the, the the sort of employer review scheme panel? Uh, well, actually, it was uh, it was the equivalent of an internal IGC because it's a contract based scheme. But I did chair the internal governance committee. Yes. Uh, you've been on the NatWest scheme, and of course, you work with a number of fintechs, including Tumalo, Guide, and, and, and Cushion. So, very welcome. There's a, um, there's, there's a lot in that, isn't there, Julius? Yeah. You're a busy man. Uh, well, I try not to work too hard, I have to say. Uh, I only do any work part time, but um, I, uh, I used to have an executive role running a DC business. That's the business that um, BlackRock sold to Aegon. Oh, okay. So that. That was kind of my, my executive um, employment. And then some 20 odd years ago, I decided to go portfolio and I, I started out with um, a number of different roles, which have tended to revolve around either DC uh, governance, investment governance or insurance company asset governance and investment governance. So as Nico said, you know, a couple of big DC schemes. I was also a chair of um, the Nest uh, Investment Committee. Uh, and um, more recently, the roles broadened out, I suppose, into a range of fintechs, which uh, adds another interesting dimension. So you're you're highly qualified to appear on this podcast, mm -hmm. then, which is absolutely fantastic. But 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 before we get into how you got into the pensions industry, and before we get into a discussion about VFM, um, we'll start with the news. So um, and we always give our guests prerogative on this. So um, Julius, what have you got for us? Well, it would be remiss of us not to um, talk about the budget, would it not? Um, I, I have a particular perspective, which uh, you know you may or may not share, and our listeners may or may not share. But um, my view is that the big news is obviously the removal of the, uh, the lifetime allowance uh, soon to come. Uh, that's a huge bonus, isn't it, for um, people like us? I made a lot of money yesterday, which I didn't earn. I don't think I really deserved. I don't think it really uh, solves a pressing problem, a uh, pressing societal problem. Uh, personally, my view is that uh, people with assets, and that includes everybody with uh, over a million pounds worth of uh, pension fund, have uh, done extremely well since the financial crisis. Quantitative easing has produced just a huge bonus, a huge transfer of value from asset, uh, non-asset owners to asset owners. And this feels to me to be another enormous transfer of value from uh, non-asset owners to asset owners and I think it's completely unjustified. It is, it is odd isn't it that um, the government decided to target this uh, particular measure when the public finances have been 
under so much strain. And um, they talk about um, the measure being there to, to help with NHS doctors um, and, you know, totally get that something needed to be done on that. But it does seem like a bit of a sledgehanger to crack a nut, doesn't it? You know, um, increasing sort of already generous tax allowances for all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so from my perspective, I, I, I'm maybe a bit more lukewarm than you guys sound cold. Um, really just from the perspective of the existing tax regime is a mess. Um, you, you know, we don't have a lifetime allowance for ISAs. They're, they're an input which is limited by how much you can stick in. So we've already got an annual allowance and one of the budget measures was to change the annual allowance and that's, that's going up substantially. That's going from £40,000 a year to £60,000 a year. Um, I, I, I think you can either have a tax regime which is based on kind of lifetime savings or a tax regime which is based on input. Both, to me, was always a mess. So uh, which one you scrap is sort of up up to you. But uh, yeah, I think I'm probably a bit more positive on this than, than, than it sounds like you guys are. That surprises me, Nico. Um, that does surprise me. But I think, in a way, you've got... The, the allowances were never re- really designed to control cost. Yeah. Um, I remember when the annual allowance was originally introduced um, back post A Day reforms in 2006, it was set at above 200,000 a year. Mm. And, and, and it was an anti avoidance measure to stop people um, coming into the UK, you know, um, loading up um, tax relief, pension saving, and then um, leaving the country. So as soon as you started using these levers or these allowances as cost control mechanisms, then it does get particularly tricky. And, you know, one thing that I know we we, we focus on DC, but, you know, can you get an input measure for DB that actually works? Or, you know, should we be thinking about, you know, maybe an input measure for DC, um, but having a lifetime limit for DB and splitting the two out? Yeah, I mean, so there's many ways to, to crack a nut. Um, th- there are input measures for, for DB. I mean, ultimately, there's a cost that the employer and the actuary recognise is, is your accrual for that year. Um, so, you know, it's very assumptions loaded. It's not like the cash that goes into a DC scheme. It, it is uh, a bunch of actuarial assumptions, but, you know, we can, we can haggle over that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, it's, it's kind of one or the other. And, and you know, maybe you put one side db on a kind of lifetime measure and dc on an input measure uh, what do you do with the kind of hybrid schemes and if you've got you know if you're in the uss and you've got db and dc going in parallel i think i think it's a bit of a mess um you, you know before a day we had ir rules ir max and that limited your accrual in tax-free savings of db benefits um so you could retrospect that and and you know kind of work out what that equates to as a dc contribution there's a number of ways to do it i i think the system that we had was bad um and doctors were the the, the tip of the iceberg um for, for me the worst thing is hearing that labor is going to reverse this policy because it just demonstrates the lack of cross-bench support for any pensions initiative and you know who's going to benefit from this it's going to be the lawyers and tax planners who <laughs> are servicing the, the high wealth people who are going to take 18 months or however long it is before you know potentially labor come in power and reverse this um uh to do all sorts of things to make sure that there's more money for them and then you know enhanced protection new versions will come in and exactly the same tax planners and lawyers will kind of 
benefit from protecting the the new monies that's gone in. So I, it, it, it to me, it's a mess, uh, and it really shows how messy pensions politics is. Yeah, we've talked about a pensions commission um, and you know achieving that cross party consensus uh, before on this. And I think you know if Labour get in, undoubtedly they will reverse it. Um, I think Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, has been sort of in the news today um, talking about it. Um, and it's the it's the instability, it's the it's the added complexity that is most damaging on all this. And um, you know, we all worked in a master trust environment. And Julius, you 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 know, you work at Cushion, where um, you know we're trying to get more people save more for retirement. Um, quite often, these are lower paid individuals or people not with huge wealth. And you know, to my mind, I think I agree, Nico, that the system is a, is a total mess. But could we use those resources to encourage more people to to save who actually need to save? I think we're all agreed that uh, simplicity is desirable and preferably cross-party simplicity. Um, otherwise, it's not simplicity at all if it's going to get reversed. So we can all agree that um, the removal of the NLTA represents simplicity. But the question is, is it a, a sensible allocation of scarce taxpayer resource? Um, as Darren said, we, we've all operated within master trusts. And whether there is an LTA at a million or a million and a half or no LTA at all, has a very little impact whatsoever on almost all members of Cushion. Yeah, really yeah. I mean, I, I, go on, uh, go on, Darren. Yeah. No, I was just going to say it's just um, you know we, we we talk a lot about appropriate levels of uh, contributions. We talk about people uh, under saving for retirement, and yeah, I 100% agree, Julius. That you know that's where we should be focusing our efforts and energies. You know, let's think about how we can increase contributions. You know, let's think about how we can divert more of this scarce resource to the people that really need it. Uh, it's worth us just touching on the other things in the budget uh, affecting pensions as well. So there's the change to the money purchase annual allowance. So this is the allowance that if you if you crystallize your pots, if you start to reach into your pensions, um, then uh, previously you faced a £4,000 a year annual allowance. That's gone up to £10,000 a year. So potentially another uh, thing for higher earners, people with capital assets, because they might find ways to employ themselves and uh, put £10,000 of savings tax-free back into the system. Um, there's also then enhanced midlife MOT. And I think this is quite interesting. Um, so uh, uh, offering uh, digital midlife MOT, um, which uh, is expanded, uh, expanding the job centre midlife uh, MOT offer, um, in-person financial planning and awareness sessions for uh, universal claimant, universal credit claimants uh, aged over fifty. So, so an expansion of that program. I, I think there's a desire for everybody to kind of go through that. Um, you know, both probably on both benches, I think, to help people in their fifties actually start to think about how on earth they're going to convert these pots into into income. That you know, hopefully, telling them that they do need to convert this into income. So, I think kind of probably broad welcoming of that as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the the money purchased annual allowance. I, I I do wonder if yeah, this. So, there's a whole package of reforms here. So, so we touched on um, doctors. Um, you know, there's, if we go back to the Resolution Foundation's report and Torsten Bell, you know, there is a sort of emphasis on trying to encourage people who have tapped into their pensions to go back to work. Um, so I put that minimum, uh, the money purchase annual allowance, um, 
kind of in that kind of category. Do we, do we think that's going to work? Is this going to welcome back the over, what is it, 55s um, who've kind of retired back into the job market, do we think? I think um, it can't do any harm. I think it removes a potential barrier. Um, I think we saw people dip into their pension savings um, as a result of the pandemic and potentially as a result of the cost of living crisis. And I think that, you know, the the MPAA set at £4,000 was too low. So I'm, I'm, you know, a lot more supportive of them looking at this. Um, obviously, Treasury and HMRC are worried about tax-free cash recycling and getting um, tax relief twice. So that's why we have the MPAA. There might be better ways to do it. Um, so, yeah, I was, I'm, 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 I'm glass half full on, on this one, uh, which is totally different to... You know, how full my glasses, um, you know, on the LTA measure. <laughs> and I'm likewise, you know, more neutral on this, certainly not hugely negative. Uh, I do wonder, though, what proportion of those individuals who were forced to dip into their pots as a result of COVID or, or related employment issues uh, are in a position where they can afford to contribute more than 4000 a year. I'm not sure how big that segment is. But it is the case that the 10,000 figure was reduced to four, uh, as, as I recall, and it's now going back up to 10. I mean, that doesn't feel like a gargantuan waste of resource from my perspective. Mm -hmm. So broadly neutral to marginally positive. Yeah, no, I'd agree, I'd agree with that. And yeah, you're right. It did get reduced from 10,000, I think. I mean, for, for me, the elephant in the room is just the fact that um, it is the income tax relief that you get. So obviously, if you're a higher earner, the more income tax you relief you get and you know flat relief surely that would be the most sensible thing here so so, so maybe both to you. you you know if we had flat relief on contributions then would you be as uh, annoyed by this lifetime allowance kind of giveaway to higher earners would that would that ameliorate you yeah well from my perspective i've always been uh, supportive of the idea of flat rate relief i think it's ridiculous that we get this distortion in the tax system where uh, we get a greater benefit to those who are really least need it. Um, I, I think that uh, that position stands unconnected to any questions of the LTA. But yes, to your point, Nico, does it ameliorate my position or my views a little bit? Yes. Yeah, I 100% I agree with that. I think um, we need to move away from marginal rate relief. And I think that, you know, is tax relief really an incentive to save? Probably not. We need to reframe it as a matching contribution, as a reward for saving. I think that would um, particularly help um, uh, with communications to auto-enrolment savers. And um, I think that arguably that reform is now more likely now that they've got rid of the um, lifetime allowance. And I'd fully expect Labour, if they do get in um, after the next election, to be looking at that you know, um, as a way of you know, redistributing um, the tax relief, uh, but also of saving some money. Mm. I mean, just just one thing in defence of not having a lifetime allowance uh, before we move on. I, I do worry about persistent high inflation um, and the fiscal drag temptation of a chancellor of the Exchequer for decades who will be balancing the books because I suspect particularly the overhang of state pensions and other and, and the NHS costs, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be running deficits in this country for a long period of time. So, you know, we've had 10% inflation uh, over the past year or so. Uh, part of the budget release was the OBR's report, which I think was pretty bullish on inflation coming down 
you know, more rapidly than any people had previously expected. I think they're predicting 3% by November this year. Um, so, you know, maybe we're going back to a low inflation world, but if we do get a long-term 10%, 10%, 10% inflation, that million pounds already wouldn't buy you very much in an annuity. Um, that could become, in real terms, in, in purchasing power, a very small uh, lifetime allowance if, if Labour are to put it back in in the next general election. But, but that, for me, is about having a sensible uprating policy. Um, Agreed. You know, you can get round that without abolishing it. Sure. Um, but the uprating policy to date has been to reach in and play with it every so often with no... There's nothing in legislation which says it should go up in line with inflation. Right? No, exactly. And, um, you know, governments can change the legislation, can't they? You know, we see it with income tax thresholds and the like. I think, the, you know, um, the IFS would use the term fiscal drag um, mm. and, this, and the stealth uh, tax rises that you have through fiscal drag. Um, if, if people actually really understood the impact of fiscal drag, then I think they'd be quite shocked. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Shall we move on? Yeah, so, so have the, we other, done the budget. <laughs> uh, well, I think we've done the budget. I think um, Julius, we were we were talking before, and um, you wanted to sort of mention um, the launch of the LTAF as a piece of news as well. So, um, do you want to just tell us about that quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So the LTAF, uh, the first LTAF, LTAF was approved by the FCA last week, and I think the open question from my perspective is how important and how valuable a vehicle is the LTAF going to be? So a bit of context, um, I was interviewed by some Treasury uh, working group that was developing the LTAF proposals and I rather mischievously, mischievously at the time described the LTAF as a solution in search of a problem because I fully intended to uh, deliver private markets exposure for uh, cushions specifically at the time uh, without resort to an LTAF and it's somewhat ironic therefore that um, I found myself because of some of the uh, dirty detail in the conditional permitted links regulations uh, switching from the idea of a Luxembourg Wraith to an LTAF. So uh, there you go, that's, uh, that's egg on my face. But the broader <laughs> question I would pose is, um, given that the LTAF really solves a problem for uh, DC providers that are insurance company platform based, what's its future, if any, in a world where DC teams are moving away from live company platforms? If, if indeed that happens, although my sense is that that is beginning to happen, at least in terms of the conversations I, I hear about and I'm involved in. You've obviously got the ISA extension, which may be of interest, but here I am quite concerned that the liquidity implications of linking an ISA to an LTAF are very different from the liquidity uh, requirements and desires of a DC scheme linked to an LTAF. So I'm not hugely enthusiastic about the future of LTAFs more broadly, despite being uh, a seed user of the first one to be approved. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so I'll come in there, I guess. So, so, so for me, I, I, maybe even less kind of mischievous, I think it is a solution in search of a problem. Um, it looks like Cushion found that problem. Um, so, you know, thank goodness the LTAF was there. Um, it is. I, I sort of describe it as a sort of transitional form. So, so if you look, uh, I'm pretty pretty open on the record about uh, my belief that custody platforms are just a matter of time. That um, when you have scale, the best way for you to invest in unlisted assets is for you to go directly to GPLP structures and uh, other uh, um, other funds which already exist uh, to commingle your assets, if not directly holding the assets. 
Um, so, you know, the, the, the DB schemes already, big insurers, big institutions around the world already hold uh, unlisted assets without needing this, this sort of weird hybrid vehicle. So, yeah, my sense is that over time, those schemes will, will see the light, go into custody, reduce costs, access exactly the same assets at, at lower cost, uh, because you've just got fewer mouths in the feeding chain. Um, so, you know, I, I, I support that kind of sense that, you know, there's just a matter of time. Where I guess there is a use for them is in uh, small schemes who are going to persist, who want to use their life platform because they don't want to build the internal team that's needed to control those, those custody, fund accounts and transfer agent type solutions. Um, and particularly, I think, where you've delegated to a consultant or uh, a manager, a kind of manager of manager roles, where, you know, each individual slice that they're buying, maybe one scheme individually doesn't have the assets to, to make it worthwhile. Uh, but when you cobble them together and, and kind of find yourself in a kind of one billion commingled vehicle plus, then maybe that is a good kind of use study of the of the LTAF. But even that has a belief around it, which says, okay, so, so how long are the smaller schemes going to exist outside of master trust? There's, there's definitely a world where there's essentially no single employer trust left in 2030. Um, so yeah, I mean, you might, you might, I think you might find LTAFs going out to that kind of date. And for me, the kind of future is a lot less clear after that but i think you'll find the planning horizon for investment managers is is a lot closer than that and so there'll be a few more coming i think oh, all, all good points all good points and I, I think you wrote a briefing note didn't you nico on um the future I did. of life platforms so um we should probably post a link to that when we distribute the podcast as well oh absolutely yeah so you can go to my website nicoaspinall.com uh, and if I've done done my job in the web design, I'm sure it's easy to find. But yeah, we'll post a link alongside that as well. Um, I also did a playpen event, uh, so with uh, Steve Goddard um, being interviewed by Henry Tapper um, to talk about custody and life. Um, so uh, I know they post their videos, and uh, no doubt you'll be able to find that too. Custody and life. What a great um, yeah. yeah. What a great comment. Um, have we done the news now? We have, and, and we should note that unusually uh, our guest prerogative has been uh, <laughs> exhausted. So Julius has given us all the news this this week. So thank you very much, Julius. That's uh, that's brilliant. No, thank you, Julius. Um, so uh, a bit about yourself. Um, how did you get into pensions, Julius? Well, I'm sure like many people listening to this podcast, I fell into pensions by accident. Uh, so I ended up um, in my first role post-university working for an insurance company. Um, which again was not part of a grand career plan, but I did quite enjoy it. And we did do some uh, retail pensions work, some reasonably interesting stuff. I think uh, the company I worked for, Albany Life back in the day and Sun Life, were then the only two organisations to offer what we then called a self-invested pension, uh, now obviously a SIP. And uh, I then switched into the asset management industry. And here I was just very, very lucky because it was just around the time when institutional asset managers will be becoming interested in, in defined contribution schemes and the assets that they might bring. Uh, and I was just about the only person in the organisation who understood a little bit about asset management and quite a lot about insurance companies. So I, I fell into the uh, role of, um, of running the defined contribution business for originally Mercury Asset Management, then Merrill Lynch, uh, which I mentioned before is the business that BlackRock finally sold to Avon. Uh, and so you, you you've become you became a pensions trustee at, at, at something like fifty as well. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, 
you're right. In fact, earlier than that, I think, actually, probably in my mid-40s, so uh, still white male middle class, but not as old then as I am now. Um, uh, but yeah, I started out uh, with a couple of early trustee roles, um, and I enjoyed those very much. And uh, because of the insurance company connection, it was an easy move into um, insurance company uh, governance and investment governance. So that got me a, a role at Royal London, um, chairing uh, their investment advisory committee. It's one of my very early roles, which was kind of a precursor to an ITC. It still exists. It still looks after the Royal London Governor range, which is a, a great range of risk-rated portfolios for both accumulation and decumulation in contract-based space. Uh, and from thence into with profit committees and uh, more significant trustee roles, as I've already mentioned. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, I, I think you've inspired the next generation. Your daughter is already a trustee, is that right? Yeah, Nika, that's very sweet of you to, to pull that one out of <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, so while she may be middle class and white and quite privileged, uh, she is at least female and very young. And yeah, she's, um, she's a member nominated trustee on the Fidelity uh, own scheme. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Does she ever come to you for guidance or advice, Julius? <laughs> we occasionally talk uh, at high high levels of principle <laughs> rather than any level of detail, of course. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> um, and you were involved in Nest, weren't you? Yeah, I was one of the founding uh, trustees at Nest Corporation, which was absolutely fascinating. So I oversaw the um, early transition from Pada to Nest, or at least the early consequences of that. Yeah. And uh, I began by uh, chairing the risk committee. And then, as I mentioned earlier, went on to chair the investment committee for a while. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have a great deal of respect for NIST. I think they're doing a lot of very interesting stuff in the investment space. And I still uh, stay very closely in touch with uh, my ex-colleague, Mark Fawcett. And you may have noticed the uh, joint request for information that NIST and Cushion put out into the market a little while ago around uh, natural capital mandates, which was really an attempt to... Um, break the mould and suggest that cooperation between master trusts might be a good thing, particularly where mandates are both expensive and hard to diversify. So very much looking at the Australian model, uh, where that's been quite a successful innovation. So Mark and I are doing our own bit to try and um, uh, set a new course for the UK master trust industry. We'll see how successful it is. Yeah, that's um, that's that's really good, because we had um, Greg McClymont on, didn't we, Nico, um, mm. from IFM? Mm. And I think that's, uh, you know, where the, the supers got together um, to open up the investment set or the investment opportunity set for um, the super schemes. And it just makes sense to collaborate, um, especially when you're looking to go into sort of more sophisticated investments and, you know, you benefit from economies of scale. Well, here's my pitch. So when we all talk about uh, wanting to improve member outcomes, kind of drifting into value for money territory, but... Um, it's connected to the previous point we've been discussing. Um, we don't really believe that when we're talking from the perspective of the master trust we're currently working with, that the member we're so worried about is only ever going to be uh, a member of that master trust. We know that they're going to move around between different master trusts. So if we really believe uh, in our commitment to improving member outcomes, then we need to be focusing on system change, uh, improving outcomes across master trusts, not only within the master trust that we're currently working for. That's um yeah that's that's good and and and, and what what's the response been to this uh, joint collaboration you know have other people come up to you and said oh how do we get involved or you know um do, do you think this could be the start of a new model and a new way of doing things well I hope so um it, 
the, the joint press release and, and the FT interview that Mark and I both did occasioned a lot of positive comments. That was really good. I was genuinely hoping that uh, we'd have an other master trust saying, could we come on board? And, and you know, Mark and I had already discussed what we what we would say. And that would have been subject to an alignment in terms of liquidity requirements, contribution profiles, that kind of thing. We were going to say yes, but no, we had not a single organisation approach us. Having said that, um, we are at Cushion in conversation with another master trust at the moment about another form of cooperation. So we're sticking to our guns. We will see. No, that sounds um, that that's that sounds good, and um, I, I, it's really positive that you know you were there um, at the start thinking about okay, if someone else wants to join this not club but this initiative, um, you know how do you respond and stuff. And I think um, you know we should see more of this stuff. So um, good luck with that, and hope it goes well. Thank you. Yeah, so let's talk about value for money, uh, Julius. What is value for money? Well, as I think I probably just intimated, I would define value for money in terms of member outcomes. So that's a, it's a simple high level definition, but that is how in my book, we need to measure uh, value for money. The really tricky questions are how we go about checking on whether we are going to improve member outcomes or not. So um, member outcomes, I guess, is adequacy a part of that? Yeah, it's a good challenge. Uh, I, I think it is, um, but that's not kind of where my mind was going to go next. So mm. in the absence of a prompt, uh, I, I guess where I was heading next, Nico, was uh, this really hot current debate about the balance between backward looking and forward looking uh, metrics, mm. which we should use in order to to measure value for money and therefore to make fiduciary judgments about whether member outcomes are likely to be improved or not. And I know you've had plenty of debate on this topic um, in your own podcast. So um, I'm going to begin, if I may, by by talking about mm. why I that one of the principal uh, proponents of backward looking metrics is saying some really important positive stuff. So we all know that's Henry. So call out to Henry. Hello. Hope you're well, Henry. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Um, I think the stuff you're doing on um, uh, the member experience as opposed to reported fund performance is extremely important because there is a world of difference between looking at fund level returns and the member experience specifically and particularly um, member experience picks up things like sequencing risk which can be quite important in accumulation and materially important uh, in decumulation also picks up um, issues like spreads uh, as you've identified in the context of uh, lifestyling so I'm very, very strongly supportive of the idea that we need to look at the member experience as an important backward looking metric. Where Henry and I tend to diverge is whether that is the only metric that you should look at. And I'm very much of the view that it should not be the only metric you look at. And for me, uh, forward looking metrics are also extremely important. I'll pause there and let you get a word in edgeways, Nico. Well, don't don't say that to Nico, for goodness sake, Julius. Uh, <laughs> you'll never you'll never stop him. Um, so 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 I'm going to come in there actually. Um, so so how do you define these forward-looking metrics then? Um, you know, like we we all know that forecasting and predicting out into the future is very very difficult. Um, so you know, how how do you go about framing that, Julius? Yeah, it's, um, it's a really good question, uh, and and it's not as though there are straightforward, simple, objectively consistent. Um, non-subjective answers. 
and, and that's why I think this is a difficult conversation because one of the attractions of backward-looking metrics are that they are known, they're objectively verifiable, and they're straightforward and simple, and, and that is the heart of their attraction. But before I answer your question, and I will answer it, Darren, uh, with at least one suggestion, uh, can we talk a bit about why I think forward-looking metrics are important? Yeah, sure. But my principal argument would be that we need to be careful about how much the past is going to tell us about the future. The past can certainly tell you some things about the future. So in my governance roles, I've always looked uh, backward to see whether managers have performed in line with their expectations, or with my expectations of them, should I say. Yep. And where they haven't, that's been a signal that perhaps something has gone wrong. And I may well, as a consequence, want to make changes uh, going forward. So the, the past can certainly tell you lots about the future. But unless you believe the past is the same as the future, then it can't tell you everything you need to know. And for me, you don't have to look further than the regulatory statements about past performance not being a guarantee of um, future returns. That's, that's all you need to know about the limitations yeah. of using the past to inform yourself about the future. And we could look at climate as another example. You know, if you look at the uh, track record of climate mitigation investment strategies, you know, there's some noise. Is there a signal in there? Maybe it's a small signal. But do we really believe that even if the current signal is small, that climate change isn't going to be a material um, influencer on investment returns? I think it's going to be a huge influencer on investment returns. So for that, we need to make assumptions about the future being different from the past. So with that um, precursory set of comments, I, I will answer your question now. So what would I use? I would use forward-looking risk and return, and I would have some uh, consistency around the metrics that one is allowed to use to project forward in terms of uh, expected risk and return. And you could have a standard um, government actuary style uh, approved uh, list of expected returns, volatility and correlations. And you might accept people using that on a comply or explain basis. I think it's possibly reasonable to uh, suggest that master trusts that have very strong views about an asset class's future behaviour ought to be allowed to use those in their forward-looking risk and return estimations, uh, providing they explain why they've done so and the fact that they've um, um, they've diverted away from uh, from you know the standard set of tables. So that that's how how I would go about doing it. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm struck by um, an analogy to how you might rate a diversified growth fund. Um, so obviously, the, the, a lot of the job of the trustee is to think through where the, the markets might be going and to pull together uh, a diversified pie chart of, of, of different opportunities. So somewhere in there is, is an analysis of manager skill. Um, and that has to be qualitative as well as quantitative on the on the back data and and i guess the qualitative piece you know when i was at towers watson they had a team who went and talked to managers about how they thought about markets um how they thought about implementation of those views how strong those view was you know what the process was, all of that kind of stuff and I, i'm not seeing any of that in the vfm consultation to me there must be some sort of role for some independent party to come and talk to trustees about their process, right? And that, that, that's the critical piece, because otherwise you're marking your own homework again, and you're, you're just putting in high projected returns because you have strong conviction. How, how do you hold to people to account for those views? 
Well, it's a good challenge. So um, I, I think there is, I think there should be scope for uh, master trusts to move away from a standard set of forward-looking assumptions. So let me give you an example. Um, at Cushion, we have very strong views about the size and scale of uh, physical and transition risks as far as climate is concerned. We think that the integrated assessment models that are currently used in scenario analysis by almost all master trusts materially understate uh, the downside risk. And as a consequence of that, we apply quite an aggressive uh, adjustment for climate-aware investment strategies, which we call a greenium, a cushion, uh, which is larger than that uh, deployed by some other master trusts. Now, I'm quite happy to explain why we're assuming uh, a slightly uh, a higher reduction in expected risk and a slightly higher increase in expected return than some other master trusts. And I do kind of think it's important to allow fiduciaries scope to make those judgments. You then hold them accountable for those judgments by looking at how they've delivered ex post. So again, we come back to this interaction between ex post and ex ante. But um, I agree with all the points you've made. It's very hard to strip qualitative judgment out of being a fiduciary. And if you do, they're not fiduciaries, they become auditors. Yep. So for me, backward-looking analysis is about checking whether things have gone wrong. It's an audit function. But the tricky bit uh, in assessing whether your strategy is going to deliver good member outcomes and therefore delivers good value for money is all about qualitative judgments about the future. That's what a fiduciary is paid to do. I think that's an important um, distinction that you make there about the, well, the, the distinction about the role of governance and of good governance. Um, because, you know, what's the point in having trustees? What's the point of having fiduciaries if they can't take views um, and if they can't, um, you know, look to design something that's in their, 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 their the best interest of their members? Um, how, how do we police this then, Julius? So, um, you know, I, I quite like... Um, can, can, can I pause this back a bit? Because I, I think you just made a really important point. I just wanted to challenge, ask Julius... So are trustees actually in charge of the asset allocation, right? Because, you know, there is a budget that is kind of part of a fee that goes up. And Darren and I have spoken a lot uh, about splitting out that investment budget and making it clear. But are trustees actually kind of, do they have their hands on the wheel? Well, I'm not going to speak for all trustees, but the trustee boards that I've been involved with, uh, to varying degrees, have had their hands very firmly on the wheel. So this goes to scale and resource, doesn't it? So uh, when I was a trustee at Nest Corporation, um, the trustees absolutely had their hands on the asset allocation wheel. Um, and uh, at um, what was then RBS, the DC scheme, now the NatWest DC scheme, it had a very well-resourced and very skilled in-house investment team. And um, the trustees, again, had their hands pretty firmly on the investment wheel, supported again by a substantial in-house investment resource. Cushions trustees have their hands firmly on the asset allocation wheel. Does that mean that all trustees do? No. Did, did Heineken's governance committee have their hands firmly on that wheel? No, they didn't. It was a, a largely employee-based internal governance committee. So this is horses for courses. But it comes back to some earlier comments we were talking about um, the future for small DC schemes. Mm. And I have some pretty clear and quite strong views about the likely uh, landscape in 10 years time. And it doesn't contain many own trust DC schemes. It doesn't contain any DC schemes where the trustees don't have their hands on the asset allocation wheel. Mm. 
because because I mean obviously different asset classes cost different amounts of money so there's the, there is this constraint of budget uh, I mean for me one of the realizations that I hope to come out of the VFM consultation and, and Darren and I Darren and I will be recording our response soon uh, is the need to split out I mean and ultimately make not subject to the charge gap the investment costs uh, because the the, the market should be competing on investment efficiency and the quality of that investment decision-making process. And at the moment, I think it's all wrapped together and you definitely have propositions and we don't need to name names who are very, very cheap on investment costs. Uh, the trustees, I don't think, do have decision-making powers in practice. They might take the blame if we have a massive equity market downturn. Um, and I don't think you can compete on investment risk and return at the moment. I, I, I think the market is not efficient in that or, or competitive in that in that kind of light. So, yeah, I, I think part of the VFM reforms has to be to separate that job for the trustees and make it the trustee job. Um, that would be one of my pleas. So, Nico, let me respond, because that touches on a lot of issues I think are really important. So first, I agree with you. We should be stripping out the investment charge and the platform charge. Uh, it's what we do at Cushion. Uh, I think it helps hugely in uh, clarifying where value is being delivered and where value is not being delivered. So that's my first observation. The mm -hmm. second one, you're right. Once you have a clear investment fee budget, it's an investment fee constraint within which the trustees have to work. But I would go back and say that I think that even where that's the case, trustees are in charge of the asset allocation wheel because they're in charge of deciding how that constrained budget is spent. So they don't have complete freedom of action. They can't decide to appoint active equity managers, even if they'd like to, because that's probably not where most value is going to be delivered. So, you know, just as an example, um, I think it's the case in quite a lot of uh, master trusts that global equity exposure, which tends to be a pretty high proportion, is allocated to a low cost solution whether that's a market cap index or whether it's something more sophisticated, a climate tilted index. And then you spend the balance of the budget that you've got available uh, across the rest of your asset classes. And, and that's exactly what um, Cushion did in terms of finding budget for a big allocation to private markets and a residual budget for uh, active bond mandates. We could have split, I should be more careful about what I say, the trustees could have split that uh, allocation of fee budget in a different way. And that's an active debate which we are continually engaging with between us and the trustees. Then the final point I'd make is that you're right, Nico. Um, it's very, very hard to compete successfully in this marketplace uh, by delivering a sophisticated and therefore by implication a more expensive investment strategy. This is something that really needs to be fixed because competing uh, against um, providers who are grinding their costs down to the bone and have a tiny investment budget is very challenging if you want to deliver a private market solution. Mm. And if you believe, as I do, that there are many good reasons for investing in illiquid assets and spending some more budget on those uh, than you would have to if you went for a pure passive solution, if you believe that's in members' interests, then you, we have to find a way of shifting the debate from a debate about price to a debate about quality. And I, and I suppose that, you know, in a way, that's why we're here um, and we've got this consultation. I suppose it depends on, um, you know, how, how the government takes this forward. But also, I think it depends on the, um, you know, the, the, the behaviour or the response of the buyers of pensions. 
um, you know, because often it's, well, pretty much often it's the employer's choice. Um, and, you know, quite often I would argue that the employer is more focused on cost rather than value because it's something tangible. It's something easy to explain. Um, how we shift that dynamic, especially within a, a market where business is very, very sticky, especially for, you know, the uh, smaller employers is going to be, um, you know, it's, 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 it's going to be quite interesting. Mm. Right, uh, just well, to add, uh, go on, go on. Sorry to cut across you, Nikhil. I'll have a stab, um, Darren, if you, if, you, if you will grant me the indulgence. No, please I, do. This is a really tough question. So how on earth, how on earth might we shift employers from a, a focus on the tangible issue of cost and the ease with which um, it suits them to deliver a message on change a provider. Don't worry, don't worry, fellow employees. We've reduced your costs. Mm. Yeah, it's a great message to deliver. So how on earth could we shift them? Well, it seems to me that uh, employees who focus on cost are in real danger of missing uh, a really important trick. So how would I go about shifting their perspective? I'd point out that most employees have very low levels of awareness of um, the pension contributions that the employer is putting in on their behalf, let alone the provider that they've chosen uh, on the employee's behalf. And as a consequence of that, employers get very bad value for each pound of pension spend. Yep. It's just not a valued benefit. So how much better if that employer could be uh, made aware that a scheme that can offer very high levels of engagement, significantly as a result of investment in assets that create real world change that the employees can be excited about and even i dare say be proud of how much better value will that employee get for each pound of pension spent if the employee goes from being unaware of what the pension scheme is doing on their behalf to being proud of what the pension scheme is doing on their behalf so that's my proposed solution to this conundrum i agree it's a very very tricky one yeah, I, I just wanted to round back on the kind of backward-looking versus forward-looking piece, um, because I, I, we do also have to recognise that if higher cost sophistication looks like active management, then essentially it has failed. Uh, the last decade plus has been very, very generous to passive strategies um, with quantitative easing and various uh, kind of government interventions. Um, you know, do you believe? So I guess backward looking, if you had had unlisted portfolio uh, portfolio contents in your uh, in the unlisted markets and private markets over that sort of period, would they have done better than active listed managers? Um, and and then secondly, Julius, like how how strongly do you believe in that kind of unlisted or illiquid illiquidity premium kind of thesis? Yeah, well, I guess my response to your first challenge would they have done better? Well, it kind of depends. And anyway, it's a moot point, isn't it? Because we didn't. And the assets that we are proposing to hold now are very different from the assets we'd have proposed to hold 10 years ago. So um, what are my levels of confidence that they will deliver additional value going forwards? They're extremely high indeed. So let me explain why. Uh, first of all, this is a matter of investment beliefs again, isn't it? I do believe an illiquidity premium exists. We can argue about how big, how big it is. We can argue about how big it is by reference to different asset classes within a broad private market sleeve. And we could probably agree that it changes over time, but I think it exists. The second point I'd make is that over the last decade and more, the opportunity set in listed assets has just become a lot smaller. Mm. And that's a result of a whole number of features. But one I'd draw out is that 
many exciting companies are coming to the listed markets far later than they used to. And there are plenty of examples of that. So if you want a piece of the action of some of the real success stories going forwards, you're probably going to need to hold them in the private market space rather than wait for them to become listed. My next argument would be around the availability of genuine diversification and some really interesting forms of inflation protection in private markets. Uh, so plenty of really interesting private debt assets that carry really attractive inflation protection characteristics. And diversification, I'll just give you one example, Woodland, uh, going back to our, our Nest Cushion uh, joint request for information. Really interesting asset class, you know, broaden it out into natural capital. You've got something which is just not very, very highly correlated with our equities or bonds. So genuine diversification opportunities. So hugely additive in terms of uh, expected risk and return, as opposed to just return at the total portfolio level. And then, then finally, my argument would be, you know, this is very cushion specific. You know that cushion is very climate focused. Um, a whole load of really interesting climate assets that we mm. can buy in private markets that are very hard to buy in listed markets. Forestry, again, very hard to get listed exposure to forestry. If you want to build a, a set of wind farms with your master trust logo up the tower, which is the future that Cushion envisages, can't do that in listed markets. Mm. So again, um, a whole load of reasons um, and the value I've just talked about, the value you can extract from private markets in terms of member engagement, member awareness, member pride, all those things only possible in private markets. So I, I have a very, very strong conviction that this represents value for money, both in the context of member outcomes, directly in terms of the suggested return, but also in terms of high levels of member engagement, which in turn deliver better decision making on the part of members, and therefore, again, better outcomes through better decision making as a result of increased awareness. So this is a, a virtuous circle for me. Fantastic. Sounds 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 good. And um, it's a couple of things I want to pick up on. I do want to come back to the, you know, how do you govern the forward-looking metrics? Um, when Nico so rudely cut across me, but anyway, we, we'll, we'll have words <laughs> about that after the podcast. Um, but but, but you're, you're obviously very passionate about um, private markets and the impact that you can have and stuff. Um, and at Cushion, you launched, um, is it the, was it the Net Zero Now Fund? Um, if I if I remember correctly, and there was a really interesting um, article. Um, I think it was in Professional Pensions by um, Maria Nazareva Doyle, and um, that was looking at the whole use of offsets in terms of achieving um, net zero ambitions. And um, I think the, the the general sort of gist of that article was like, you know, we shouldn't sort of think as offsets as a swear word. Um, you know, they, they can have a role to play and, and, and stuff um, in helping getting to sort of that transition. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Julius? Yeah, I do. But I'm also happy to respond to your earlier challenge as well as Dan, as, because, you know, it's a good one. So how on earth would you police forward looking metrics? So, as I said, I would have a standard set of metrics approved. I would have uh, those used on a compiler explained basis. And if you want a little bit of extra uh, protection around that, which I think would be reasonable, mm. you'd have some independent verification of uh, the use of master trusts, of any uh, forward-looking metrics that that were different from the the industry standard ones. So that's how I do that. And would that be reg um, so would, would that be regulatory um, oversight of that, or do you think um, it would be some form of audit, um, like you know we, we we what was it? Do we there's a master trust assurance um, type mm -hmm. audit? Would 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 you envisage a, a sort of private sector solution to that, um, or do you think it needs to sit with regulators? 
I don't have strong views, actually. Right. I think that a, um, a private sector solution where you have an independent qualified firm coming in and saying, yes, these are justifiable and reasonable, I think that's perfectly satisfactory. Um, but I don't have strong views and I'd be perfectly comfortable with a regulatory solution as well. And offsets? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting and important topic. Uh, so just to be precise, Cushion launched uh, a net zero now undertaking at the proposition level, not at the investment strategy level. So what does that mean? Why is it an important distinction? Well, the investment strategy wasn't net zero now because you can't have a net zero now investment strategy. So what Cushion did was to buy offsets on its own balance sheet to negate the residual emissions within the investment strategy once we'd squeezed out as many of those as we credibly could in the short term to get to a net zero now uh, proposition level undertaking for employers and employees. I think that's a somewhat different question to the role of offsets within an investment strategy. Mm. So I think that uh, what's interesting about uh, natural capital mandates in particular, but also other sources of uh, carbon credits, um, a natural capital mandate will in due course throw off carbon credits because natural capital is a good sequester of carbon. So depending on um, to what extent the uh, natural capital mandate is, is optimised for producing timber into the building trade or is by contrast optimised for carbon credit production, you will have either a lesser or in the latter case a greater number of carbon credits that are created within the fund. So then the question is, what, what do you do with them? Well, you might want to offer them to members as a, an optional way of getting to net zero now. I'm talking about organisations other than Cushion here in the short term. Or I think in many cases, they will just be retained as an asset inside the default fund. I think they're a really attractive asset. You can either sell them to create monetary value in the short term, or if you believe the future carbon price is going to increase, you might want to hold them inside the fund and sell them at a future date. And I think one of the really fascinating uh, dynamics that are introduced into your investment strategy, if you do something like that, is that you've got yourself a natural hedge against future rises in the carbon price. So if you believe that the rest of your portfolio is going to be hurt by future rises in the carbon price, that is, is essentially what transition risk is, then if you can balance that out um, with an asset that increases in line with increases in in the carbon price, then you've got yourself a hedge. And another way of mitigating uh, climate risk, other than trying to remove all that transition risk from your portfolio. So I think that's a really interesting dynamic, which I think is gonna become more popular. One final point about uh, whether you should or shouldn't see um, offsets as a swear word. I, I think we've probably all agreed that you shouldn't use offsets where you can credibly reduce your emissions in some other way. So from the cushion a proposition level undertaking, we felt we had reduced emissions in the portfolio as far as our trustees were comfortable us doing. So we squeezed an awful lot out and we reduced diversification in our listed equity exposure by quite a lot. Going much further in terms of carbon emission reduction would have taken our diversification below the point the trustees would have been comfortable. So we, helped, we felt we could put our hands on our hearts and say, we've driven emissions down in the short term as much as we can. Very I think going further forwards, um, sorry, it was one final quick comment. Mm. Going further forwards, um, it's clear that there is no Paris transition pathway that doesn't rely on uh, carbon sequestration. There is simply not a single pathway yep. that can operate successfully without a large increase in the current carbon sequestration capacity. 
So should we not be in some way helping create that capacity? In one way you can create the capacity is by investing in natural capital. So I, I think that there is, again, uh, a reason for being positive about investing in carbon sequestration because it's increasing the supply of those carbon sequestration credits, which are going to be absolutely necessary for most companies to actually get to net zero. They can get to 80% or 90% reductions maybe without carbon credits, but the, the final bit, the hardest bit, they're going, to need, they're going to need to lean on carbon credits and therefore we need to increase the supply thereof. Uh, I'm going to take us full circle uh, uh, and talk back to the budget because there was a £20 billion announcement yesterday for CCE US, uh, so carbon capture, utilisation and storage, uh, targeting 20 to 30 million tonnes of CO2 per year by 2030. So to clearly, whether that's enough, I don't know. I hope uh, that UK emissions will be below that kind of level, um, but, but, but who knows? Uh, yeah, that's, that's obviously in the, in the kind of government mind as well. Better spending it on that than a tax bung to higher earners. Oh, it's nothing like that amount, though, is it? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Nico, I think we're going to have to wrap this up. Mm. Should we talk about coming uh, upcoming events? We should thank Julius first. Thank you very much for coming on, Julius. It's a great pleasure. It's been great fun. I uh, love talking to you guys. I love listening to you guys as well. You've done some great podcasts already. Long may it continue. Uh, thank yes, you very thank much, you. and thank you for um, being such an engaging um, guest. Um, really, really enjoyed it, and um, I think I've learned quite a lot as well. We'll mm. be good to know. So, um, yeah, what events have we got, Nico? Uh, so, coming up this week uh, on the twenty third of March is uh, Iris, the uh, Impact and Responsible Investment Conference. Uh, that's obviously hosted by DG Publishing uh, and that London Zoo, uh, and then their DC Strategic Summit is the fifteenth of May. Um, my research with the De Defined Contribution Investment Forum, uh, the TCFD research launch is on the 28th of March, uh, and I believe there are still places available if you'd like to uh, go and find tickets for that. Um, and I should also say I've appeared, I've, I've been uh, moonlighting, Darren. I was on their podcast, uh, and I believe that will come out on something like the 29th of March. Uh, so listen out for that. That's, um, I tell you, you didn't agree with that with, that with me in advance, <laughs> Nico. Yes, yeah, you don't you don't play fairly. You don't play fairly on this stuff. Um, yeah, I think we've got about um, right over it's around seventeen hundred downloads of the podcast mm. so far. So um, I've been overwhelmed with um, the comments that we've got and the fact that people are, are listening and stuff. So you know, it's it's great. Do email us at vfmpensions at gmail dot com um, if you want to appear on the show or if you've got a question. Um, do like, comment, share, tweet, retweet, all of that type <laughs> of stuff, um, because that helps spread the word. Uh, next week, we've got Mike Berners-Lee, um, who uh, is uh, author of uh, climate change books, including No Planet B. Uh, and uh, we'll be actually recording uh, on that on the Friday. So, so our, uh, our edition will come out, depending on how well, how quickly Darren can, can uh, edit it, uh, will be coming out probably Friday afternoon, Darren, Friday evening. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, thank you very much. Thank you, Julius. And see you then. Thanks very much, Julius, and goodbye for now. Bye-bye.